Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 14 of You Don't Know Jack. I am your humble host, Sarah Dimio, apologizing to you once again for my tardiness in getting this episode out to you. This is the podcast, giving you everything you need to know in the career of the great Jack Nicholson. Last episode, we talked about five easy pieces. That was the role that made Jack into a bona fide star, and it was his second collaboration with director Bob Rafelson. They had previously co-produced 1968's Head together. Now, I'm going to recap you a little bit in how Bob Rafelson's production company evolved during that time period. But first, I want to go back in time a bit and share with you this little gem that was brought to my attention by a listener, Florencia. Florencia has been listening since the first episode. She's one of my OGs. She asked me if I knew anything about an old movie that Jack was in called The Hour of St. Francis, and I had never heard of this title. So I went over to IMDb and I looked it up. And turns out, The Hour of St. Francis was a TV series that originated from an old radio program. It was one of those shows where each episode was different. Each told a story of someone with a moral conflict going on, or it highlighted some type of virtue. It was one of those uplifting type of shows. And I know I haven't done too much coverage of Jack's early work on television. I did touch on his guest appearances on The Andy Griffith Show, but that's because it was The Andy Griffith Show. It was one of the biggest shows on TV at the time. But as for this other series, The Hour of St. Francis, Jack made an appearance in an episode, and the episode came out in 1962 and it was called The Challenge. In it, he played a high school student who decides to become a priest. And that's really all there is for a synopsis, but I will tell you, this entry on IMDb also has screenshots from the episode, and it's really a sight to behold, seeing a young Jack dressed in priest's garb, taking the vows, giving communion, I'll post these shots on our Facebook and Instagram. And as Florencia told me, the episode is available on YouTube. So I think if you look up The Hour of St. Francis, Jack Nicholson, you're going to find the full episode there. So I know I'm going to do that. So I would suggest if you're a Jack fanatic like me and Florencia, you do that too. I mean, the, the roles that a struggling actor has to take before his big break comes. Am I right? But now let's move forward a little bit to the end of 1970, after the release of Five Easy Pieces. Now, to give you that recap, director Bob Rafelson's production company, BBS Productions, had originated as Ray Burt Productions when he co-founded it with Burt Schneider. They were, of course, the company that created the monkeys. By the end of the 1960s, Raybert Productions had evolved into BBS Productions when they brought in a third partner, Steve Blauner. BBS stands for Bert, Bob, and Steve. After BBS Productions brought us five easy pieces in 1970, 
they would then take on their next project, which would be Jack Nicholson's directorial debut, which we are talking about today, 1971's Drive, he said. Now, some differences with the productions of Five Easy Pieces versus Drive, he said. Five Easy Pieces had a budget of $1.6 million, which in 1970 is a good amount. Drive, he said, was given a budget of $800,000, which is still a nice chunk of change, but it's not a million and a half. This one was an indie feature, which premiered at Cannes in May of 1971, and then it was released in the U.S. in June of that year. The film is based on a novel written by Jeremy Larner, which I have been reading over this past week. Jeremy Larner also co-wrote the script along with Jack, and the film was produced by Jack and Steve Blauner of BBS. I had never seen this film up until about two weeks ago. What I can tell you initially going into it is that the main backdrop of the film is basketball, specifically college basketball. And I think most of us living here in the U.S. likely understand how intense a thing college basketball, college sports in general are, not only for those in it, but to the general public. Like, I live in Connecticut, okay? So I understand the hype of college basketball. I don't think they let you live here unless you know about college hoops. So the cast includes William Tepper as basketball star Hector Bloom. Karen Black, who of course we just saw starring as Rayette in Five Easy Pieces. She plays Olive, who is married to a university professor, but she's also having an affair with Hector. Robert Town plays Richard, professor, Olive's husband, and friend to Hector. Robert Town is a name that we're going to hear a lot in upcoming episodes of this podcast, as he is an Academy Award-winning screenwriter who, among his long list of credits, he wrote the screenplay for a film called Chinatown. And we also have another old friend, Bruce Dern, as Coach Bullion. And the film also features Michael Margota as Gabriel, Hector's volatile, rebellious roommate. The film opens during a home game. We see Hector in slow motion, taking a jump shot. This is a regular season game, but it's close, and this is intense. It's everything you imagine in a tight college basketball game. The stands are packed. People are on their feet. Hector Bloom is the all-American hero. Coach Bullion is yelling at them from the sidelines telling them how they're shit and they better step it up. Now, as always, I want you to remember, though, the times that we're in. This is the early 70s. There's campus unrest. There's protests of the war in Vietnam. There's fear of the draft. There's civil rights unrest and women's rights unrest. We've got this exciting veil of college basketball. Something that brings people together and is inclusive for all ages and backgrounds. And at the same time, all this turmoil is lurking just beneath the surface. And that's when we first see Gabriel 
He's with his guerrilla theater troupe, getting ready to disrupt the game with a stunt. And this is the moment that we hear where the title of the novel and the film comes from. As the troupe watches the game on a monitor, one of them recites the poem, I Know a Man, by Robert Creeley. As I said to my friend, because I am always talking, John, I said, which was not his name, the darkness surrounds us, what can we against it? Or shall we and why not buy a big goddamn car and drive, he said. For Christ's sake, look out where you're going. And noticeably, with basketball being our central theme throughout the movie, it gives the poem a second meaning. Drive, as in drive up to the hoop and be that hero everyone is looking for. Suddenly, all the lights go out in the gymnasium. A voice comes over the PA. Searchlights begin to light up the whole place. Easily. Lights come back on when the troop is detained by campus police and the game is able to continue. The home team wins. Fans are cheering. TV reporters want to talk to Hector. And in the next scene, we see the team hitting the showers. And it's exactly the type of talk you might expect with a bunch of dudes high on adrenaline in the communal shower together. They're ragging on each other, talking about the size of each other's genitalia, their members, their apparatuses. And I'm not saying that to be vulgar. This is a relatively lengthy, no pun intended, scene at the beginning of the film. And not only that, but it's literally a whole chapter in the book. And if I could share with you for just a moment, a couple passages from that chapter, quote, had you stepped into the showers after the winning of the game, you would have observed with no small curiosity a ceremonial in progress. Not the wondrous physiques, nor the prodigious limbs, nor the miracle of sleek youth would so interest you as half a glimpse of that unaccountable dangle which proceeds downward in all but the most favorable weather. And if I skip ahead just a little bit, Basic equipment inspected and found in order, the celebrants moved to comparison. Jellop had a clear claim to length, but perhaps Jeff Craspy had the edge in thickness. Thomas Jefferson's was of another color. Jellop sported a scallop. Finnegan's came and went again. Buckholder's veered sharply. Tony Lupini's tapered, end quote. 
With that scene, both in the movie and in the book, I thought it gave a good glimpse into the rituals of being on a team. There's the high of being in the game, then the apex of winning, and then the coming down from that high together after the game. But as we can see in the film, and in this particular scene in the book, Hector is right there along with them, going through these highs, going through their rituals together. But something is missing. There's an unease to Hector's character, or more so, I should call it a disenchantment. The next day, we see something quite different. We're inside of a ballet class. Olive is one of the dancers. And then we see Hector walking down a long hallway, and then he stops to lurk in the doorway as this class full of young women continues on with their leaps and their pirouettes. Some of them whisper to each other when they see Hector appear in the doorway. After the class has ended, Olive is sitting in the passenger seat of Hector's car. Hector comes over, gets into the driver's seat. But before anything can happen, Richard, Olive's husband, comes over to the car, mentions to Hector how Gabriel is still being detained by campus police after the stunt that he pulled, and he asks Hector if he can take Olive home. I was a little confused by this scene, and I did watch the movie twice. Unless I'm misunderstanding something, is Richard not noticing that Olive is already sitting in Hector's car? I was really trying to figure out if maybe there had to be something that I missed or I just misunderstood because Richard just comes across as so oblivious here. He is he is oblivious to the fact that Olive is cheating on him with Hector, which is confirmed for us in the very next scene. It is now nighttime. Olive and Hector are having sex in the car. I do have to say that it was very tastefully done. It wasn't wild, gratuitous, or anything like that. It's actually very intimate. We see just one beam of light in the car. Olive up against the driver's seat with her back to Hector. And Hector, we see, appear just over her shoulder. It happens slow and quiet. It gives the impression that this is not just a physical affair, that there is a relationship budding between Olive and Hector, albeit inappropriate and almost certainly leading to more problems down the line. There's a scene in the book which offers more insight into the passion between the two of them, where Hector and Olive are parked at a drive-in diner, getting coffee, and suddenly they start to be harassed by this other guy in a Cadillac. The Cadillac circles the area around them a few times before driving up next to them, and the guy calls out to Hector that he's in his space. Hector refuses to move, and the guy brandishes his knife at Hector, but Hector plays it cool. So the guy backs off, but when they do eventually decide to leave, they find that the Cadillac is following them, and this Cadillac has about six guys packed into it, making Hector and Olive outnumbered. So Hector hits the gas, but the Cadillac stays with them, down every dark curve on every road Hector turns onto. Fortunately, Hector sees an exit to escape off of. And as he hits that turn, he guns it into a wooded area while the Cadillac slams down into a ditch. And Hector and Olive are safe, 
and away from those guys who were after them. And with their adrenaline at an all-time high and their passions racing, they do it out there in the woods. But now let's check back in on the movie, specifically with Gabriel. He has been released by the campus police. He's back in his room, which if you're watching the movie without any context, it appears that it's just kind of a bunker underneath the gymnasium. Well, it is. I started reading the book after I had watched the movie once, and this is why I cannot stress enough how important it is to also read the book if there is one when you see a movie. Because majority of the time, the book will have the answers to questions that aren't answered within the movie. The book goes into detail about Gabriel's background that is never touched on in the movie. It adds all these new layers to his character. So according to the book, Gabriel is enrolled at the university on a politics scholarship. And he worked out this scholarship, and that's all it says, that he worked it out by stoking the furnace and pushing the dust mop across the gym floor at halftime. And he took up residence in the tiny caretaker's room in the bowels of the gym. Now, Hector, as I said before, is Gabriel's roommate. Hector, against everyone else's wishes, decided to forego dormitory life with fresh air and people to socialize with, to bunk with Gabriel, who was his friend. And what else we learn here about Gabriel is that his full name is Gabriel Rubin, and he comes from New York. He was an only child of a very shrewd father who lived a carefully managed middle-class life, even though he had invested enough to surpass a worth of over a million dollars. And he had a very careful, clean mother, as she is described. Gabriel was never given anything he didn't need, but was always told how spoiled he was. So he started to become a problem child. He was sent to boarding schools in Arizona in the wintertime, and then on supervised fishing treks to Canada in the summer. And at 12 years old, Gabriel declared himself to be an Anglo-Catholic to his strict Jewish parents. And then for the next three years, he worshipped a life-size luminous crucifix on his bedroom wall. He took private communion from an engraved silver chalice that he spent his life savings of $300 on. When Gabriel started college, he had 23 cashmere sweaters, charcoal Bermuda shorts with a matching blazer. He was elected the president of the Interfraternity Social Committee and officiated the coronation of the Winter Passion Queen. But then, in the spring of his sophomore year, that's when things took a turn. The enemy had launched a brief and devastating peace offensive, which is in quotes, and Gabriel took this to mean that the gods were becoming bored with him and his, let's say, straight and narrow ways. His friends began to sicken him, which made him want to be alone, and these friends would eventually disappear out of his life. People started making him feel sick just when they tried to talk to him. It became a question between Gabriel and his very high-strung mother which one of them would crack first. So Gabriel promised her that he would see a psychiatrist. So he walks into the office of a biotherapist. This biotherapist began to use the methods of something called 
affirmative posture and true orgasm on Gabriel. Gabriel would have to stand naked in the middle of the room and this biotherapist would move around him, poking and prodding at him, massaging his leg muscles, etc., to loosen up various areas of tension. And this biotherapist's office was located in a part of the village filled with people totally different than anything Gabriel had ever known. Poets, painters, jazz musicians. And to Gabriel, they seemed to be so much more alive than anyone he had known before. Like everyone before them just existed. And this is how Gabriel came to be the troubled, unpredictable student that we know him as in this movie. That moment in the book that I mentioned between Hector and Olive after they escaped the guys in the Cadillac, the last line in that chapter offers an important perspective about Hector. After he and Olive have finished and they're back in the car where it's safe and warm, it says, in his last thought before he curled into the grip of deepest sleep, he yearned for the clean, true feel of a basketball. So for Hector, basketball is the one thing that he knows. It's that one stability in a world around him that is unending turmoil. So I don't know if this was the intent, but to me, it kind of felt like this is the reason why Hector chooses to live in a tiny room under the gym with Gabriel, like he's close to what he knows and he doesn't want to let anyone else or anything in. I don't know if that's a naive assessment on my part or if there's something else to it. Like maybe it's an act of defiance. Maybe there's a part of him that wants to be like Gabriel and say fuck this to absolutely everything, everything that he knows and everything that's mainstream. In the film, we have a scene with Hector and Olive together in the daylight hours. Hector is standing up on a brick wall and Olive is standing on the ground below watching him. And I absolutely have to point this out. This brick wall is covered in graffiti, but most of it is faded. Except for over towards the right, in big white letters, we see H.D. Stanton. Last time we saw that etched somewhere, it was an easy rider on the cell wall as George Hansen, played by our man Jack, is waking up with the most miserable of hangovers. Jack had written it there for his friend, actor Harry Dean Stanton. Now, I have read that somewhere in each of Jack's movies, you can find H.D. Stanton or Stanton or some variation of the name stealthily written somewhere on the set. I had thought that to say that it's in every movie had to be an exaggeration, but when I saw it on that brick wall in Drive, he said, I said to myself, oh, you sly son of a bitch. Am I going to have to keep my eyes peeled for Harry Dean Stanton's name in each movie that I review from here on? It can't be true, can it? it can it? So I'm going to need some extra sets of eyes, okay? Everyone listening who is kind enough to lend me your ears each week, I'm going to also need use of your eyes and see if you can spot 
H.D. Stanton in any of our upcoming films. But to get back to what's happening in this scene, Hector calls down to Olive, I love you. But Olive looks back at him and doesn't respond. After a second, Hector says, what, I can't say I love you? It brings us back down to reality a little bit. It's a reminder that this quasi-relationship with Olive isn't a true, stable thing, like the feel of a basketball, when Hector is leading his team to victory, doing what he does best. Hector is expected to go pro. His teammates, the public, they all want to see it happen. Coach Bullion wants to see it too, but the coach has the hardest time of anyone when it comes to Hector. Hector has a real lack of discipline, and the coach has even said that he blames himself for that because he's been too easy on him. So at the next home game, Hector gets into a scuffle with a player from the other team, and it immediately escalates into Hector punching this other guy in the face, and then that leads into an all-out brawl with both teams storming the court. Hector gets ejected from the game, and he heads over to Richard and Olive's house. Olive is home alone. She lets Hector in. He's looking dejected. He's definitely got that look of someone who just got thrown out of the one thing he's good at. He sits down at the table next to Olive. And then Richard comes in. He sees Hector. He says, oh, Hector, I heard what happened. I thought you might be here. And Hector says something to the effect of, oh, I just don't know what to do. I don't know if I want to go pro. And Richard says, well, Hector, basketball is what you're great at. It's what everyone loves about you. Olive, on the other hand, is getting to the point where she's fed up with both of these guys. And she has a great few lines where she lays it out to the both of them. You envy him because he can move his ass. And all he wants to do is sit around here and shake his head about it. I don't want to just... I mean, you don't have to do that. I don't want to talk about it. You two can sit here all night and talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. You two are just right for each other. A couple of big babies. Her lines right there really hit me because I realized as much tension that's been going on with each character just beneath the surface, this is the central conflict that we've been watching unfold this entire time. Hector is a college basketball star who everyone loves, the public loves. He willingly decided not to live in a dorm, but to instead bunk with Gabriel in the caretaker's room under the gym. The NBA has already had a sit-down meeting with Hector, asking him if he'll sign, and he's having sex with a professor's wife, a professor who's also his friend. I think if you step back and look at it, it's really pretty high up there on the tiers of first world problems. But it's a double-edged sword when you realize that, because then I started to feel like, well, why should I invest in Hector Bloom as a lead character when at the end of the day, his problems are so trite? Like, why am I devoting an hour and a half of my life to hearing the story of this character's life, who has this angst over things that most people could only dream about? 
I loved Karen Black's performance as Olive in this movie. And I'm blown away by her, I think mainly because we just saw her as such an opposite character, Rayette DePesto in Five Easy Pieces. I mean, Karen Black has a long list of memorable credits to her name. It's not news that she was a sensational actress. But I think it was just to see Five Easy Pieces and then drive, he said, back to back. That just made me think, give this woman all the Oscars. Literally, give her all the Oscars in existence. I don't care if it's best sound editing, best foreign language short film. If it's an Oscar, it should belong to Karen Black. May she rest in peace. But I think the character with the real problems in this movie, the really mentally disturbed character was Gabriel. We see this as his character becomes more and more unhinged as the movie progresses. And it all comes to a climax when during the team's regional playoff game, after Hector has been allowed to play again, Gabriel breaks into Richard and Olive's house while Olive is alone, and he attempts to assault her. And the way these two events, the big exciting game, and this violent assault on Olive were spliced together is worth noting, because it's equal amounts of action on both sides. The players pushing themselves on the court and the crowds on their feet cheering them on versus this woman alone in her house, terrified, trying desperately to escape this maniac who has let himself in. Equal amounts of adrenaline in two entirely different scenarios. But the thing is, that assault is not even the thing that solidifies Gabriel's madness. That moment comes at the very end of the movie. And while it's much more subdued, it's also more bizarre, more unexpected than anything else we've seen from him so far. And it seems almost out of character, like he's not even in his own body at this point. And again, I would remind you, it's important to also read the book to get the full context of where Gabriel is coming from and just how far he has deteriorated during his time as a student. When Drive, he said, premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, it definitely had mixed reviews. There was a report from the New York Times that said that the film set off the most violent reaction from an audience at the festival that year. I wonder if that's in part because the film was almost given an X rating because there is quite a bit of nudity, both women and men. But overall, would I say that this is a good debut for Jack as a director? Well, my feelings are lukewarm. I guess I had trouble in feeling like there was much of a story to tell here. I just mentioned a minute ago that Hector Bloom's life is straight up hashtag first world problems. I think there are other characters, namely Gabriel, who with the things that he's seen and the things he's learned throughout his upbringing versus who he becomes and the company he keeps who have a much more dramatic storyline to tell. Drive, he said, is not a difficult one to find. I found it on demand. I would suggest getting the movie and the book. What I did was I watched the movie, then I read the book, then I watched the movie again. So tell me what you think about Hector Bloom. Was he a character that 
you found you could follow and could empathize with? And what about Gabriel? What do you think is going on with him? And why does he turn into the person that he does? Next week, Jack is the star of the show once again, because we will be talking about 1971's Carnal Knowledge, co-starring Art Garfunkel, Anne Margaret, and Candace Bergen. Until then, please join us on social media, You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. That's the place to be for daily updates on what's going on over here. And obviously, if you're like me and just like to look at pictures of Jack Nicholson, that's also what that's there for, too. If you liked what you heard today, please leave me a review so other Jack fanatics can find this podcast. You Don't Know Jack is a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Visit clovercrestmedia.com and discover more great original podcasts. And until next week, I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack. <laughs>